Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to a new episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, and Cadence 13. Now, our show is only as good as our listeners. Y'all fact-check me, provide new insight, give your opinions. And to become a contributor, simply go to jenkspod.com slash contributors or call 413-471-2975. Thank you for being a listener and a voice for the podcast. You probably haven't seen a guest house like this. It's pretty sweet. It's about 60,000 square feet, There's 120 rooms and 18 full-time employees making sure everything looks perfect. 14 guest rooms, each with a full bathroom, three dining rooms, two conference rooms, several kitchens, a beauty salon, exercise room, you get it. It's called, literally, the President's Guest House. That's the address, also known as the Blair House. The pad is just across the street from the White House. Since World War II, This is where guests of the Presidents of the United States stay. Kings and queens, prime ministers, emperors, and where the president-elect generally hangs in the days leading up to the move just across the street. Queen Elizabeth II, General Charles de Gaulle, and President Nelson Mandela have all spent time at what has become known as the world's most exclusive hotel. It's September 26, 1994. Boys to Men is arguably the most popular group in America. The Shawshank Redemption has just been released and is getting solid buzz. At the Blair House, Russian President Boris Yeltsin is President Bill Clinton's guest. Yeltsin is 6'2", a bit overweight, with slick back silver hair. He has an infectious grin. Two of his fingers on his left hand are missing. When he was a kid, he and his friends were playing with grenades they had stolen from an army store and they exploded. On this late September evening, it's about 60 degrees with clear skies, Yeltsin is having a blast, or so it seems. He's been drinking booze for quite a while and is now running from room to room in his underwear. At one point, he stumbles down a staircase. Eventually, Yeltsin is brought back up to his room by his security team and goes to sleep. That's how the story ended in the history books. But in a book titled The Clinton Tapes, The night for Yeltsin wasn't over. Much later in the night, really the next morning, sometime before the sun comes up, the Secret Service discovers Yeltsin alone outside of the president's guest house. Yeltsin is drunk, wearing only underwear and yelling for a taxi. Why a taxi? Well, despite the numerous chefs on call, Yeltsin wants pizza and is hoping for a cab to take him somewhere to get a slice. 
When asked later about what the Secret Service and staff did, Clinton shrugged, well, he got his pizza. President Boris Yeltsin and President Bill Clinton ran their respective countries for most of the 1990s. Both had big personalities, big ambitions, rough childhoods growing up in small towns, and fatal flaws. Both came to power in the early 90s, both served second terms, and both were riddled by scandal, leaving office at the turn of the 21st century. This period of time was an opportunity to see America and Russia become sincere friends, true allies. Yeltsin was the first democratically elected leader in Russian history, and Clinton wasn't just a Russian history buff, but was entranced with what he could do to help the struggling country. Only a few years into their friendship, seeing how well they got along, laughing and hugging in front of cameras, the press began calling them the Boris and Bill Show. A few months ago, the Clinton Library released records of the two talking over the course of their time in leadership. It's mesmerizing to read. The New Yorker, in a September 2018 article, noted the transcripts of phone calls and meetings, with an occasional memo thrown in, adds up to a more than 500-page record of friendship. Yes, there are lots of laughs in this story. But despite all of the similarities and all of the goodwill, it seems to have all fallen apart. And in the backdrop was a man not so happy with what was going on. A man who came to look at Boris Yeltsin as a national embarrassment, a stooge to President Clinton and the Americans. That man was Vladimir Putin. What really happened? Boris Yeltsin wasn't necessarily born with a drink in his hand, but he came pretty damn close. In fact, if it weren't for alcohol, there's a good chance he wouldn't have been named Boris in the first place. Yeltsin was born in a small Russian village in 1931. The priest who was in the process of baptizing Boris had been drinking. Drinking so much, in fact, that he put Boris in the tub, got caught up in an argument with somebody, and forgot Yeltsin was underwater. His mother, terrified, saved her son. The priest, realizing the close call, apparently said, well, if he can survive such an ordeal, it means he's a good, tough lad. And I name him Boris. Boris is a Russian name that means fighter or underdog. And Yeltsin certainly fought for most of his life. The few people in Russia who remain loyal to Yeltsin, who died at 76 years old in 2007 of congestive heart failure, fight for his legacy to this day. The Boris Yeltsin Museum was erected in November 2015. It attempts to honor the late president, but has been treated with disdain by much of the Russian public, and most certainly Vladimir Putin. The independent Levada Center found in 2016 that only 14% of Russians had positive feelings about Yeltsin. It seems that Boris is losing the fight for history's respect. But why? On October 19, 1991, Yeltsin was the president of the Russian Republic, different than the president of the Soviet government, Mikhail Gorbachev. It's worth going online and watching Yeltsin during an attempted coup as he stood on a tank declaring that the will of the people would win. With incredible force, he declared that the Russian people must defeat the hardline communists. And he would defend that right by any means possible. It was a massive risk, one that could have resulted in prison or execution. Have we forgotten that this happened? This is an NBC News special report. Crisis in Moscow. Now, here is Brian Gumbel. 
This has been an extraordinary day in the Soviet Union, where Mikhail Gorbachev has been ousted from power. In what appears to have been a bloodless coup, hardliners have seized power and declared a state of emergency. Boris Yeltsin, the president of the Republic of Russia, is at the center of what resistance there is. He has called on his people to resist the emergency committee, and he's urged an immediate general strike. He has also urged Soviet soldiers to abandon their posts. The end of communism was an extraordinary moment for Russia. The people electing their own president was monumental. As legendary anchor Peter Jennings pointed out, nobody believed it would be easy for Yeltsin. We begin tonight with the very clear results of the first free election ever to be held in the Soviet Union. Not only has Boris Yeltsin been elected president of the Russian Republic, but he has buried his communist opponents. Now comes the real test. After months and months of tapping into popular unrest about the system, can Boris Yeltsin govern? Added ABC's reporter on the ground. The day after Boris Yeltsin won a convincing victory, there was no celebration, only a news conference by his supporters. Part of the reason, everyone knows what Yeltsin is now up against. The public may love him, but the entrenched communist bureaucracy gives him no applause. In villages and towns throughout Russia, it is the local communist party leaders who hold the local government positions. Yeltsin plans to change that. It was during Yeltsin's speech on that tank when he said, the people of Russia are becoming masters of their destiny. Masters of their destiny, where had I heard this before? Well, maybe Yeltsin wrote this himself, but there's a chance he was inspired by Napoleon who used the same line. Or maybe Winston Churchill, who I learned from season one, made the famous masters of our fate speech when addressing the United States Congress in 1941. Some argue that while there were certainly risks, Yeltsin's belief in democracy also helped him come to power, that it was politically advantageous. But it's hard to not watch these videos and see his sincere and profound belief and love for democracy. Perhaps he also subscribed to Churchill's line that democracy was the worst form of government except for all the others. And it wasn't just Yeltsin's belief in democracy. Clinton and his team were convinced they were dealing with the first non-imperialistic Russian leader. Almost four months after Yeltsin stood on that tank, the Soviet Union, on December 24, 1991, gave up its seat in the United Nations. It was now the former Soviet Union, and 15 countries would replace it. Russia became, by far, the biggest country on Earth, twice the size of the United States, and more importantly, the owner of over 20,000 nuclear weapons. So I have some research here that I wasn't able to use, and I don't mean to knock the guy, but as it turns out, the former Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, didn't have the greatest teeth. According to a September 30th, 2015 Wall Street Journal article titled A Man Who's Looked Power in the Teeth, clever title, dentist Mark Ben-Hurry worked on Yeltsin's teeth and many other high-ranking officials. He said Yeltsin had the worst teeth he's encountered. Quote, I did a full mouth of reconstruction. One of the most important things we can do for our health every day is brush our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a, and I really mean this, a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. They have sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough on your sensitive gums. Why do they do this? Because people tend to, especially me, brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. They also have this built-in two-minute timer, which 
pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. It's brilliant. Why do they do this? Up to 90% of us, wow, don't brush teeth for a full two minutes or don't clean evenly. That's why I love Quip. It's easy. It's simple. I mean, it's just nice to have one thing in life that you don't have to think too hard about. And that's why they're also backed by 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash WRH right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash W-R-H. What the world would pay attention to was how Russia would ambitiously attempt to change on two separate fronts, becoming a market economy and going from communism to democracy. One is already a massive leap. Russia was going to do both. I spoke with Dr. Adele Lindenmeyer, Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Villanova University and Professor of History, and Specialist in Russian History. She pointed out the positives of Yeltsin's reform. I had been to the Soviet Union many, many times before, going back to the late 1960s. The press was free. In fact, it was quite traumatic for Russians because the press began to write about the real crime rate, for example. Information had been so controlled, the people had such limited access to information about their own society. Problems like domestic violence or epidemic disease, the conditions in prisons, it was one revelation after another. And the the access to information was exhilarating, but also profoundly shocking. During this time of incredible reform, I can't help but think of the Russian saying, which I didn't know was a Russian saying until this project, you have to learn to walk before you can run. There's no getting around the economic upheaval the Russians faced. Despite Americans and other countries pouring billions of dollars into their economy, it felt like if the Russian economy was doing any walking, it was going backwards. President Clinton's longtime advisor, James Carville, is known to say when it comes to winning elections and becoming a popular president, it's the economy, stupid. And Yeltsin discovered this the hard way. No matter the progress made in democratic values, no matter the small victories he had against communism, it was impossible to ignore the dire state of the Russian economy. Meanwhile, Yeltsin was also trying to rid its country of communism. But the Russian president faced a parliament that was made up of two-thirds communists and ultranationalists. President Yeltsin's solutions to his country's problems is where many think he fell terribly short. Bill Clinton's longtime advisor and deputy secretary of state, Strobe Talbot, said in his book, The Russian Hand, a memoir of presidential diplomacy, Boris Yeltsin knew what he hated about the Soviet Union far better than what he wanted to put in its place. If there was an incapacitating, if not fatal, flaw in Russian reform at its birth, it was the absence of a collaborative relationship between Yeltsin's government and the parliament. Said Dr. Adele Lindenmeyer, I visited Russia in 91, 93, 94. Shops were empty. Rationing was introduced in 
cities like Leningrad and Moscow, people talked explicitly about fears of civil war. People's savings disappeared overnight. So it was economic catastrophe. It seems to me that Boris Yeltsin is noticeably absent when America talks about Russia, which we certainly talk about quite a bit. There are hardly any English biographies on him, no documentary specials, much less films. The closest movie I could find was a 2003 scripted comedy titled Spinning Boris, about a group of Americans featuring actors Jeff Goldblum and Liev Schreiber, who are hired as political consultants for Yeltsin while he fights for re-election. It seems the United States has always had a hard time understanding the former president. You can start with a 60 Minutes piece by reporter Leslie Stahl from June 14, 1992. And we were invited to the dacha. We thought Boris Yeltsin wanted to talk to us about what he hopes to accomplish on his trip to the United States, what he hopes to accomplish here in Russia. But then he said, no, he wanted to have a quiet, relaxing day with his family. To say Stahl and the 60 Minutes team had a tough time understanding the president would be an understatement. The report is incredible to watch. The entire interview is conducted on a tennis court. At times, it feels like a comedy, something out of an SNL sketch. Yeltsin sports an Adidas shirt and a Nike headband. He grunts or barks throughout the games and the interview. At one point, he plays his grandson in tennis, who, feeling tired, goes for some water. Yeltsin won't allow it. Water is a sign of weakness, he says. Just imagine this. The leader of Russia, the first democratically elected president, and his first interview with an American media outlet isn't in an office or conference room. There's no B-roll shots of him and Leslie Stahl walking down a busy hallway. Instead, Stahl points out that Yeltsin is playing three sports at once. From tennis, to soccer, to volleyball. (laughs) Tennis, soccer, and volleyball all in 45 minutes on this one tennis court. She notes how impressive this is, and similar to then-President Bush's ability to take on six different sports in one weekend. Perhaps some smart political maneuvering on Yeltsin's part. It is also at this point where I realize maybe I'm wrong. Maybe tennis is a smart move. After all, throughout his career, Yeltsin was charged with being unfit. By the end of his tenure, there were numerous reports at various points that he had died. This was the first moment I had realized one should not underestimate the Russian president. But he is also most certainly erratic. This is on full display. Yeltsin does, in this unexpected soundbite, talk about the early days with his wife. When we graduated and got married, my wife and I, we just had two chairs. We didn't even have a table. So we had to do everything on the floor. On the floor? Really? We had to make love on the floor. That's why we got girls. I didn't understand that, but decided to move on. Suddenly, he takes issue with a non-existent video. He accused CBS, completely erroneously, of working in league with his arch-rival Gorbachev in doctoring a videotape that made him look inebriated during his 1989 trip to Washington. The charge came out of the blue. We don't know what you're talking about. What happened? What happened with CBS? CBS? Yeah. Gorbachev received a tape from the network about a visit to the U.S. I made. 
And they use different speeds to create that special effect. And used it before our elections. CBS never had the tape he's so upset about. We've never even heard about it. And 60 Minutes executive producer Don Hewitt told Yeltsin so. No, no CBS. No CBS. No, 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 no. No problem. All was forgiven. He went back to his game. Shortly after the issue is cleared up, the interview ends abruptly when Stahl persists on asking about health care conditions in Russia. He walked off, leaving me with pages of questions I never got to ask. President Yeltsin's first formal interview with the American media is over. He walks off the tennis court. Although before doing so, he shakes hands with everyone on the CBS crew, including the sound person and cameramen. Only a few weeks later, then-Governor Bill Clinton and President Boris Yeltsin met for the first time. The location? The president's guest house, the Blair House. Clinton was running for president against George H.W. Bush. Yeltsin was in town for a big speech he gave to Congress that went over incredibly well. The New York Times reported on the front page that, quote, lawmakers said Mr. Yeltsin appeared to have won some converts with his stirring speech and dramatic personal confrontation of lawmakers who had been opposing passage of the aid program. While I watched the speech, Yeltsin is clearly prepared and forceful. We have left behind the period when America and Russia looked at each other through gun sights, ready to pull the trigger at any time. Despite what we saw in the well-known American film, The Day After, it can be said today, tomorrow will be a day of peace, a day less of fear and more of hope for the happiness of our children. The world can sigh in relief, the idol of communism, which spread everywhere social strife, animosity and unparalleled brutality which instilled fear in humanity has collapsed. It has collapsed never to rise again. I am here to assure you, we shall not let it rise again in our land. And of course, he has a few jokes. Please don't count the applaud against the time that I have been allotted for speaking. The Times would go on to say, he stood before the house's enormous American flag, with his broad shoulders and swept-back silver hair towering over the rostrum, his broad face seizing frequently into his easy grin. Bush and his camp didn't want Clinton to meet with Yeltsin on this trip. It made Clinton look presidential. In fact, Yeltsin wasn't exactly entranced with the idea of meeting Clinton either. Yeltsin and his team believed Bush would win, and if Bush did lose the 92 election, it be to Ross Perot. Nonetheless, Clinton was able to get his meeting with Yeltsin. Clinton started the meeting by telling the Russian president he was impressed by his speech both on the tank a year prior and to the Congress the day beforehand. Clinton said Yeltsin's tone and style would lead to the United States financially assisting Russia even more. But Yeltsin didn't like how Clinton phrased this. Yeltsin didn't like this word, assist. He never would. We're not looking for handouts, he retorted. Russia is a great power. Yes, they needed help. But they preferred the help to be offered, not something they requested. Ideally, this help wouldn't be talked about too much. They were a proud people. To make it seem like Yeltsin was coming to America, asking for money, wasn't the goal, and hurt him politically back at home. Clinton, always looking for common ground, pivoted. 
He remarked on the resistance Yeltsin showed. Clinton said he too had been considered down and out many times in his political life. Yeltsin liked this remark. It was certainly true. As only time would tell, both men had this unspoken similarity. To survive, they had to fight off enemies at home. Before leaving, Yeltsin commented on Clinton's youth, perhaps an indication that he didn't think Clinton would win this election, but maybe one down the road. Clinton was impressed with Yeltsin. It also seemed that Despite the headlines that ran in some papers about Yeltsin's drinking habits, like the one headline I read that declared him Boozy Boris, it didn't seem like Yeltsin had been drinking, or if so, it wasn't noticeable. But that wouldn't last. So a little behind the scenes on our podcast here. I split the editing duties with the great, and quite tall, Bill Schultz, one of the greats. He has nice kids, too. When I edit some of the episodes, I prefer to do so not at this gorgeous studio here at Cadence 13 in Midtown, but at my apartment. I have quite a nice, tall desk. It's sleek, simple, modern. Also, if I have guests, I have an incredibly comfortable and, if I don't say so myself, beautifully designed couch. I got it for a great price at Article. Article is an online-only furniture company. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, Article is able to keep prices low and quality high. There's no showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. And customers come first. They have a 30-day return policy and the best customer service in the biz. Article is offering our listeners, that's all of you, $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash WRH. That's all it takes. Go to article.com slash WRH, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash W-R-H to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. It wasn't long into Bill Clinton's presidency that he knew Yeltsin's drinking would become a serious problem. In fact, it couldn't have been longer than just two days after Clinton took office. Yeltsin had called the American president to congratulate him and ask for assistance. Yeltsin needed financial aid to help the crippling Russian economy. Clinton could tell he was drunk. President Yeltsin was slurring his words, getting names mixed up, and interrupted quite a bit. Yeltsin's drinking was alarming to most, certainly Clinton's aides. But Clinton seemed less concerned. If anything, it perhaps came as familiar territory to Clinton. Maybe it reminded him of his stepfather, a raging and violent alcoholic. Years later, after another encounter with a drunk Yeltsin, Clinton said, I've seen a lot of this problem in my time. At least Yeltsin's not a mean drunk. Clinton and his team like to think of Yeltsin as Russia's equivalent to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Before meeting Yeltsin as president for the first time, Clinton said privately, they are in a depression and Yeltsin has got to be their FDR. But he can't do that without our help. I spoke with Evelyn Farkas former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. From the U.S. perspective, President Clinton really wanted to establish a personal relationship with President Putin. He wanted to make him, in a sense, his friend, although, you know, obviously these are heads of state. So he wanted to make him understand that President Clinton himself and the United States as a state meant well. He he wanted very much to establish some kind of trust. 
And so that's why he spent time with Yeltsin, invited him to the United States, and really tried to demonstrate that there was no hidden agenda. Because I think we were very well aware that there were you know, elements within the Russian government, certainly the security services, who were still very suspicious of American motives. For a period of time, albeit brief, it looked like Yeltsin was doing quite well. In fact, Clinton joked at his first White House Correspondents' Dinner that he envied the Russian president. When I first took this job, I dreamed that in 100 days, I'd pick up the newspaper and I'd read about a populist president who'd broken the gridlock and gotten popular approval for a dramatic economic program and enjoyed the support of his people. And and I did. And I resent the hell out of Boris Yeltsin. (laughs) It was also known that the Russians liked, or at least respected, FDR. Roosevelt had been an ally during World War II and was the last American president before the beginning of the Cold War. Clinton and Yeltsin's friendship seemed to grow through the years. And there's a time in 1995 that, at least at first, seems to best reveal this relationship. Yeltsin was scheduled to meet with Clinton in America. Because of Russia's affinity for FDR, Clinton and his team thought it'd be smart to host the president of Russia at Roosevelt's former estate in Hyde Park, a beautiful home that overlooks the Hudson River. The meetings were held here on October 23, 1995. The meetings went well. Clinton's two biggest goals were accomplished, and afterwards, the two men were set to hold a press conference. Now, I've watched my fair share of press conferences when covering the 2012 presidential election or my year following the Chibolote Marines. And you know things may get interesting when a press conference starts with the person at the mic, in this case the president, saying, We don't have prepared statements. Without prepared statements, President Bill Clinton and President Boris Yeltsin began what would be a press conference for the ages. They stood next to each other on the front porch of FDR's former home, in front of a single podium and microphone. Reporters stood down on the street level, and both men had interpreters off to the sides. No more than four minutes into this, as if Yeltsin had never taken part in a press conference, the Russian president purposely, albeit slightly, bumps into Clinton. Yeltsin is attempting to get Clinton's attention and attempting to do so without anyone noticing. He then moves his hands in a way to suggest to Clinton that when the time comes, Yeltsin will take the podium. Clinton isn't quite sure what Yeltsin is suggesting. So then Yeltsin points at himself and then Clinton and gesticulates that they will switch eventually. Is that right? Clinton grins and, although it isn't picked up on the microphone, whispers something along the lines of, yes, and then you. And when Yeltsin was up, he put on a show. I want to say, first of all, that when I came here to the United States for this visit at the invitation of the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, I did not at that time have the degree of optimism with which I now am departing. Clinton has his chin up and grins. He looks at Yeltsin proudly as if to say, yeah, look at what we can accomplish. Maybe Clinton is also thinking through the important points he had just made about their meeting. They discussed Bosnia. They discussed ratification for the START II treaty. They agreed on cooperating on nuclear security. They decided to work together on a sweeping test ban treaty. 
Perhaps Quentin is thinking, yeah, wow, on our eighth visit together, we are really moving things along. Or maybe, maybe Quentin's grin is hiding a worry that Yeltsin may say something else. Coming from my statement yesterday in the United Nations, and if you looked at the press reports, one could see that what you were writing was that today's meeting with President Bill Clinton was going to be a disaster. Clinton reveals a huge smile, tilts his head back and laughs. Opposed to talking about the specifics of what they are agreeing upon, Yeltsin has opted to point out that the haters in the press were wrong. Yeltsin starts pointing to his head, challenging the brains of the press. Well, now for the first time, I can tell you that you're a disaster. (laughs) Now Clinton is cracking up. In fact, cracking up is an understatement. It really can only best be described as a laughing fit. He leans down to grab his knees because he's chuckling so hard. Yeltsin has a shit-eating grin on his face. Although he's 75 years old, Yeltsin looks like a five-year-old getting away with telling the teacher off. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. It's a grin for the ages. Clinton puts his arm around Yeltsin and yells to the press, Be sure you get the right attribution there. (laughs) Clinton wants to make sure there aren't any reports that he agrees the press is a disaster. He continues cracking up. Yeltsin can no longer hold it in himself and is also chuckling. He seems quite proud to be making such an impression on his buddy Bill. As it turns out, it was likely Clinton who planted the idea that it was Yeltsin and him versus the press. Earlier in the day, he had opened their conversation by telling Yeltsin that they needed to prove the pundits wrong. The pundits want to write about a big blow-up. Lutz disappoint them. Clinton now puts his hand over his face, wiping away tears. He puts his arm around Boris's shoulder once again. And now Boris puts his arm around Bill's. This press conference has turned into a buddy-buddy routine. When you watch this, it's impossible not to smile. These two presidents seem to sincerely get along. Yeltsin then suddenly transforms. His face gets almost angry, or at the very least, serious. He starts wagging his index finger up and down. All of a sudden, he wants everyone to know he's no longer kidding. This proves that our partnership is too strong. Our partnership is not calculated for one year or for five years. But for years and years to come, tens of years for a century. Clinton, realizing the sudden change in tone, goes from smiling and laughing to a more somber face. He doesn't say it audibly, but you can see him mouth, that's true, when Yeltsin talks about this important relationship. While Clinton was talking about the details of the agreements they made, Yeltsin is now presenting the bigger picture. This was a relationship that could not be broken. Yeltsin then brings up another important word, friendship. That we're friends. And that it's only together, together we're going to be trying to solve not only our joint bilateral issues, but 
issues affecting the whole world. I kept thinking Yeltsin seemed drunk, but maybe this was, I don't know, my own misunderstanding. Maybe there was something else going on, like that 60 Minutes tennis interview. But when diving back into a few books, I was reminded that Yeltsin most certainly had a few drinks. During lunch, Yeltsin had downed, of all things, several glasses of Russian River, a California wine. Clinton would later regret that they didn't do a better job of hiding the booze from Yeltsin. But Clinton would also later say, we can't ever forget that Yeltsin drunk is better than most of the alternatives sober. As I continued to watch the press conference, now about eight minutes into it, I realized something important. That without Clinton standing there, there is absolutely no chance Yeltsin wouldn't seem like a completely bizarre, rambling man who had way too many drinks. Without Clinton there, this would be a catastrophic press conference. In fact, I realized there's a good chance Clinton's smile isn't as sincere as I had originally thought. Maybe the smiling and laughing is meant to tell the world that Yeltsin is half kidding around. Whatever your political leanings, it's pretty solid acting. Clinton is covering for his drunken buddy, or really, a fellow president who needs to be taken seriously. It's almost like when you're out with your drunk friend trying to get into a bar. Oh, him? No, he's fine. I'm with him. We're good. He's just, you know, acting unique tonight. As the press conference goes on, a lot happens. At one point, Clinton nearly elbows Yeltsin to suggest it's time for them to wrap up, but it doesn't work. When Clinton says it's time for questions, Yeltsin keeps going. And Yeltsin doesn't stop to leave room for the translator to tell Clinton what he's saying, leaving Clinton looking around for help, albeit subtly. At one point, the translator even tries to interject, but Yeltsin doesn't notice. After Yeltsin's final point, or it at least seems like his final point, he begins clapping for himself and Clinton. But as always, don't underestimate Yeltsin. When pressed on military action, he says they've agreed at large on an approach, and the details will be sorted out by their military leaders. A smart non-answer that also isn't lying. As if impressed by his politics, Clinton nods and quickly looks for the next question. It's like he's thinking, not bad, Boris. Let's get this thing over with before something goes wrong. As the last question is being asked, Clinton shifts to the front of the podium, subtly moving Yeltsin over. Clinton won't let Yeltsin take that mic again. After his answer, Clinton then grabs Yeltsin's hand and literally pulls him off the stage. He pretends it's just an extended handshake, but Clinton is actually holding Yeltsin's hand all the way down the stairs until they're far away from that podium. On President Boris Yeltsin's trip home to Russia, he had a heart attack. And then another heart attack not too long after. He was hospitalized and eventually recovered. With the help of Clinton, Yeltsin was able to avoid too many people accusing him of being drunk, but that would change. All you have to do is go on YouTube to see montages of Yeltsin out in public, clearly drunk. He's dancing, chugging beer, and slurring his words. It was embarrassing for the Russian people. His drinking is something that inevitably comes up when anyone talks about the former president, if they do at all. I was surprised to learn time and time again throughout this process, that Yeltsin seems to have been largely forgotten, said Dr. Adele Lindenmeyer. I, I'm just speculating here, uh, but I, don't know, I haven't heard 
my Russian friends mention him for years. He really came to be associated with a very humiliating period of Russian history. As history is constantly rewritten or re-examined and looked at more precisely through the lens of those whose voices have been undermined, I think it's valuable to consider the mental health of our leaders. And for Yeltsin, there seems to have been a clear mood disorder. Diagnosing someone retroactively is near impossible, but it doesn't take much looking around to learn of Yeltsin's struggles. It also explains so much about the man. In his autobiography, Midnight Diaries, awesome title, Yeltsin seems to me surprisingly candid. He speaks of his, quote, debilitating bouts of depression and frequent bouts of insomnia. From early on, he says, I concluded that alcohol was the only means to quickly get rid of stress. I remember that the weight would lift after a few shot glasses. And in that sense of lightness, I felt as if I could conduct an orchestra. Yeltsin wrote that after one mishap, a group of my aides wrote me a letter saying that my behavior and impromptu remarks were harming me and all our mutual work. None of them were able to help me. There are reports that Yeltsin attempted suicide at least twice. German-American author Martin Eban wrote about one such time, saying Yeltsin was being driven by car to see a friend. He said that he had been driven to within a few hundred yards of his friend's house, had dismissed the driver, and decided to walk the rest of the way. But as he was about to cross a bridge, another car pulled up. According to Yeltsin's recounting of the story, he then suddenly found himself in the river. Iban continues, The Moscow rumor mill quickly buzzed with various explanations of the bridge incident, ranging from attempted assassination to Yeltsin being drunk and falling in. It included the speculation that, in a fit of depression, Yeltsin had tried to end his life by drowning, but misjudged the height of the bridge and his own ultimate will to live. Like other incidents in Yeltsin's life, this event is obscured by Yeltsin's vague recollections. Others have also spoken about Yeltsin's suicide attempts. This includes some people who have had suspicious intentions, including a former security guard who had a falling out with Yeltsin, to more credible sources. Regardless, it's hard for me to imagine this. You are the leader of a nation, not just any nation, but the largest nation in the world. You are changing the country at its very core, its very foundation. You're trying to change a society that has never enjoyed a free press, that has been unable to elect its own leaders, a nation whose leaders have at times starved and killed its own people. You have said you will change all of this. You have that sort of weight on your shoulders, and you are chronically depressed. You need that much alcohol. Well, I'm sure I'll get some flack for this, which may be fair, it's hard for me not to see Yeltsin's mood disorder and drinking habits in the same light as former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Their outcomes were drastically different, and their visions for the world and ability to change the world were drastically different. With that said, both were run out of political life, only to return as their nation's leader. And both put their life on the line in order to defend their nation's freedom. Finally, both made no secret that they needed alcohol to alleviate their own internal struggles. The drinking doesn't excuse Yeltsin's behavior. I just think it's worth noting. It's more valuable to think about this than laugh at it. 
When Strobe Talbot, Clinton's deputy secretary of state, asked his boss if Clinton ever thought of bringing up Yeltsin's drinking to Yeltsin himself, Clinton said he didn't think it was his place to do so. It was Yeltsin's alcoholism and the state of the economy that would lead to his downfall domestically. And it was the war in Bosnia that would forever change his friendship with Clinton. Both of these factors would play a part in who Russia picked as their next president. Here's a nice little quote. Capitalism is the outstanding belief that the most wickedest of men will do the most wickedest of things for the greatest good of everyone. What would Sir John Maynard Keene say about this? What would he say about today's world? His head would have probably, I don't know, exploded, especially when it comes to something I've fallen for. Coming from someone who, generally speaking, is petrified of money, well, not petrified of money, but petrified of how money works, I introduce you to Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers like myself to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. There's also no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. The design is easy to use, easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. The Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at happened.robinhood.com. That's happened.robinhood.com. Five years after that press conference in Hyde Park, Clinton was scheduled to go to Moscow and meet with Yeltsin. It would be one of the final times the two would see each other. At this point, both are in their second and final terms in office, and both are facing scandals. They had made mistakes in their respective countries, and they were, and this is incredible to think, facing impeachment at the same time. Their enemies were hoping to end their political careers. Republicans in Congress wanted Clinton impeached for lying to the American people, while communists in Russia had been intent on impeaching Yeltsin on charges of mishandling the war in Chechnya and for leading the way to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yeltsin was also facing the collapse of the Russian economy. This nearly resulted, and this isn't an exaggeration, in a coup d'etat, said Dr. Lindenmeyer. The country just sank into economic catastrophe, and there were genuine fears of civil war. Clinton's longtime aide on all things Russia, Strobe Talbot, who I got to say just has an awesome name, Strobe Talbot, said in his book that, More than ever, and for obvious reasons, Clinton identified with Yeltsin's stubbornness, resilience, and defiance in the face of adversity and antagonism. He admired Yeltsin because, as Clinton put it, he had the ability to stand up to the bastards who are trying to bring him down. Clinton continued, The thing about Yeltsin I really like is that he's not a Russian bureaucrat. He's an Irish poet. He sees politics as a novel he's writing or a symphony he's composing. That's one of the things that draws me to him. While Clinton said this, Talbot says 
he heard an echo of the advice that Clinton must have been giving himself about how to handle the mess he'd made of his own public and private life. I've got to get up every day, go to work, just keep working away, doing the people's business, and maybe they'll let me stay in office. Leading up to this press conference in Moscow, set for September 2nd, 2008, Clinton remained as determined as ever to make the relationship with Russia work, to show the Russians that America was with them. Yeltsin, too, was well aware of the importance their relationship played. Clinton remarked in private, You can't underestimate the impact on our own economy and in national security and on the global economy if Russia goes south. But both presidents were in very different places politically over key issues, including the role of NATO and the war in Kosovo. The tone at this press conference in Moscow is remarkably different from the one at FDR's estate. Clinton and Yeltsin both stood at Hyde Park, in fact noting they both were the same height, 6'2". Both were now sitting. Clinton oftentimes places his hands over his cheeks, and Yeltsin doesn't bother taking off the translation headphones when he speaks. They're clearly tired. They shared a podium at Hyde Park. They now speak into separate microphones. They put their arms around each other's shoulders at Hyde Park, and shook hands multiple times. They now literally turn their backs on one another the moment the press conference is over. Before the two men exit, however, when it's time to take questions from reporters, Clinton appears to briefly grin. Perhaps this is my own overanalyzing of the situation, but maybe Clinton was having flashbacks to that press conference in Hyde Park, a memory of the times the question-and-answer sessions were somewhat of a delight. But this would not be that. One of the first questions, in fact, is about that once-promising relationship. Are Boris and Bill even friends anymore? Is the show over? Are we Russia and U.S. partners right now? Or still uh, contenders? And uh, today, uh, bidding farewell Boris Yeltsin and uh, Bill Clinton. Are they still friends? Thank you. I will start with your last question. Yes, uh, we stay friends, and the atmosphere since the beginning of the talks uh, till the end was a friendly one. You ask if we're still friends, the answer to that is yes. You ask if we are, if Russia and the United States have a partnership, I think the plain answer to that is yes, even though we don't always agree on every issue. Soon after, a reporter asks about the president's affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. What has the reaction since your admission of a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky given you any cause for concern that you may not be as effective as you should be in leading the country? And then again. And Mr. President, um, uh, another Lewinsky question. Meanwhile, Yeltsin, fighting for his political life and still having to prove he is no puppet of the West, insists NATO's looming presence is a mistake. We are against NATO expanding eastwards. One day, this will be a historic error. Clinton's understanding of Russian history, don't forget he's a Russian history buff, remains apparent. A country that rebuffed Napoleon and Hitler can surely adjust to the realities of the global marketplace. My conviction that it'll get better is based on my reading of your history. The one word Clinton appears to have forgotten, which always ticks off Yeltsin, is that word he used years ago when the two first met at the Blair House. Assistance. 
America and the international community are, I am convinced, ready to offer further assistance if Russia stays with the path of reform. The use of this word is an example of a larger criticism many have of how the Clinton White House acted towards Russia, that they weren't sensitive enough to the fact that Russia was dealing with the reality that they were quite publicly playing second fiddle. About a year later, Clinton and Yeltsin attended an international meeting with many heads of state. While giving a speech, Clinton practically stops down from addressing the group and looks directly at Yeltsin. President Yeltsin, one of the most thrilling experiences of my life as a citizen of the world before I became president was when you stood up on that tank in Moscow, when they tried to take the freedom of the Russian people away. And you were standing there on that tank, said to those people, you can do this, but you'll have to kill me first. Most of the critics of Russian policies deplore Chechen violence and terrorism and extremism. What they fear is that the means Russia has chosen will undermine its ends. President Yeltsin nearly walked off before an aide said something that seemed to calm him down and keep him seated. As documented in the transcripts the Clinton Library recently released, Yeltsin would go on to tell Clinton over the phone, of course, we are going to talk to each other, you and me, but there will not be such a great drive and such friendship that we had before. That will not be there again. At least once, in a fit of rage, Yeltsin hung up on the President of the United States, his old pal. By the end of the 90s, Yeltsin was looking for a new prime minister, and likely the person who would replace him as president. He was looking for a leader who believed in democracy, but also a leader who wouldn't give in to the communists. They had been intent on impeaching or even imprisoning Yeltsin for his actions during the war in Chechnya and his introduction of the market economy. President Yeltsin needed someone who wouldn't put him on trial, or his family on trial, when he left office. After going through several prime ministers, he selected someone from the Federal Security Service, Russia's intelligence service. Yeltsin landed on a fairly unknown name, Vladimir Putin. Yeltsin claims in his book to have picked Putin because, unlike others who were up for the job, Putin, also a former KGB agent, looks strong, just like a determined general that Yeltsin would read about in books as a young kid. Yeltsin added, Unlike other deputies who were trying to lay out their visions of Russia and the world, he did not try to strike up conversations with me. And precisely because of that, I wanted to talk to him more, said Evelyn Farkas. It was a combination of factors. Certainly, Yeltsin looked for somebody who could guarantee his family's safety and his safety. And given Putin's connection to the KGB, which then became the FSB, you know, the security services, obviously that was likely. He also felt that he had control at that moment, obviously, over Putin. And Putin had given him no reason to think that he wouldn't be respectful of the needs of of Yeltsin and his family. Putin also had already developed his own pattern of looking after himself and his cronies back in St. Petersburg, which is to say that he already was corrupted. And so Yeltsin didn't have to fear that this would be some guy who would come out on a holy crusade against corruption that would end up impacting Yeltsin and his family. Strobe Talbot writes in his book regarding both leaders' temperament, if Yeltsin was hot, Putin was just about the coolest Russian I'd ever seen. Putin would also do his homework 
and make sure you knew. When speaking with Talbot, Putin would make references to the poets Talbot had studied dating back to his college years. Clearly, Putin didn't just know the dossier on Talbot, but studied it. In his book, Talbot writes that Putin's remarks and knowledge were, quote, both flattering as in I know you and unnerving as in I know all about you. Fairly quickly, Vladimir Putin became extremely popular in Russia. He represented much of what Yeltsin and other politicians vying for the top spot were not. While the others lived loud and large, Putin was the opposite. While Yeltsin was in bad health and well-known for his drunken rage, Putin made sure the public was well aware of his black belt in judo, his disinterest in drinking, and his relative youth. He was about 20 years younger than Yeltsin. Putin was quiet. Some world leaders saying they had a tough time even hearing him when he spoke. While meeting with Talbot, the two were given iced tea. Putin took out the two sugar cubes that were placed in his drink. A Spartan diplomat, Talbot concluded. Yeltsin had picked Vladimir Putin to hopefully replace him. And Putin said nice things about Yeltsin. But like many Russians, Putin was embarrassed by Yeltsin. In fact, this embarrassment seems to have run particularly deep with Putin. Said journalist Michael Crowley, For Putin, Yeltsin's tenure symbolized a profound humiliation. The notion that the Soviet state in which he'd been raised and trained, whose demise he once called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, had become a client state with a leader who was a source of Western amusement, was stinging. It was a sting he never forgot. And when Putin met with the Russian troops shortly after he took power on the first day of the new millennium, January 1st, 2000, he told them their mission included restoring Russia's honor and dignity. Crowley added that for Putin, Yeltsin's drunkenness symbolized the self-loathing shambles to which the former superpower had been reduced. I think back to that 60 Minutes interview. Throughout it, you hear President Yeltsin grunting as he attempts to chase down tennis balls. Overweight and with that headband, the video hasn't left my mind. It's hard not to imagine that it also never left Vladimir Putin's mind. It's hard not to think that maybe that's one of the reasons Putin releases those seemingly annual photos of himself without a shirt riding on horseback. He is a man in charge, not somebody lounging around a tennis court attempting to play some variety of sports, telling a child that toughness requires not taking a break for water. James Goldgeier, a former top Russian official on Clinton's national security staff, said that from Putin's standpoint, the Bill and Boris show was basically Boris saying yes to everything Bill wanted, and that the U.S. was basically defining the order of the world and what Russia's place in it could be, and that Russia was too weak to do anything but go along. I've realized that Yeltsin's drinking was far worse than I had originally thought. I've learned that he was a complex person. Leon Aronis, director of Russian studies at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research and author of a book on Yeltsin, said, like the country he led, the first Russian president was a study in contradiction and evolvement. At once, sadly, hopelessly, and gruesomely in the past, and daringly and inspiringly in the future. It is this duality, this quality of work in progress, that makes Yeltsin such a fascinating subject for a biographer and such a difficult one. 
He was the man who ordered troops in Chechnya and for a year and a half prosecuted a war there, incompetently, with appalling brutality and in complete disregard of his country's public opinion. Aronis continued, and yet, in the end, at almost every critical juncture, despite the mistakes that preceded the decision, he moved in the direction of greater political liberty over authoritarian constraints. It is without question that Boris Yeltsin introduced the world to Vladimir Putin. But what I've also realized is that if it weren't Putin, it likely would have been someone who, if you can imagine, someone who was just as bad, if not worse. A leader who would also have imprisoned or killed his enemies and members of the press. We obviously will never know how that alternative pick would have played out. When Yeltsin resigned on the day before the beginning of the 21st century, President Clinton addressed the world in front of the White House. The relationship between the United States and Russia under President Yeltsin has produced genuine progress for both our people. 5,000 strategic nuclear weapons have been dismantled. Our nuclear weapons are no longer targeted at each other. His lasting achievement has been dismantling the communist system and creating a vital democratic process within a constitutional framework. The fact that Prime Minister Putin assumes responsibility today as acting president in accordance with the Constitution is the latest example of President Yeltsin's achievement. You see that warm personal relationship with him. What did you admire? What, what, what are your thoughts about him as a person? Well, I liked him because he was always very forthright uh, with me. He always uh, did exactly what he said he would do. And he was willing to uh, take chances to try to improve our relationship, to try to improve democracy in Russia. I liked him because I think he genuinely deplored communism. He lived with it, he saw it, and he believed that democracy was the best system. I think it was in every fiber of his being. While the actual election of Vladimir Putin would be an achievement in the ongoing progress of Russia's democracy, it also would result in a leader with very different principles and ideas of what a democracy looks like. When Yeltsin died in 2007, Clinton, along with over 30 other heads of state, former presidents and royal family members, attended his funeral. I wonder what Clinton was thinking as he sat in the pew and looked on. Perhaps, if anything, Clinton was beginning to realize that Yeltsin's belief in Putin as a democratic leader is a perfect example of Yeltsin's oftentimes contradictory decisions. For each one of his daring steps forward, it seems to have always been followed by several steps backwards. It only adds to a complex narrative when we try to tell the story of former President Boris Yeltsin his relationship with Bill Clinton, and what really happened. Next week on What Really Happened... It's a six-year-old boy who is inside an experimental balloon. He went flying away with the balloon when it broke away from the tether. There are reports uh, that he may not be in there. He's in there. We're going to cross our fingers, I guess. It's at 100 feet. Let's just all take a deep breath. He's losing altitude. He's going down. Would you look at this? You want to say a little prayer? You might want to do so now. One of the strangest things in the history of my television career is going down. Balloon boy, baby. What really happened? Don't forget, go to jenkspod.com to give me feedback or jenkspod.com 
slash contributors to become a part of the team. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. Also, a very special thank you to musician Anya Marina. She will be at City Vineyard November 14th. And check out her brilliant web series, Anya Marina, Independent Woman. Comes out November 12th.